This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you love underground music and movies, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed shirts, vinyl, CDs, and more. Go to portlanddistro.com. Plug in the discount code MikeHill666 for 15% off at portlanddistro.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Everything Went Black podcast. Before we get started, I want to thank our newest members to the Patreon squad, Alexander and Kristen. Thank you very much. If you're interested in bonus episodes, early access to the regular shows, and uh, miscellaneous stuff like that, head over to Patreon, sign up for the Everything Went Black podcast Patreon. You can also go to everythingwentblackmedia.com and a window pops up, they'll take you to the site. For as little as $1 you can join, or as much as $5. You can become a member. Each level has its own perks, but at the very least, you'll get bonus material, most likely four bonus episodes a month, so you get basically two, two episodes a week. At level $5, you get early access. Welcome back, Peter Ferris, author and musician. Pete was on the show way back when, when he was promoting his first novel, Last Call for the Living. He's coming back mostly to catch up and talk about his forthcoming novel, The Devil Himself, which is available right now in France. So if you're listening to this and you're in France, do not hesitate to pick up this brand new crime fiction novel by Peter Farris. If you're living in the States, this is available for pre-order, and we talk about that in the show. So without further ado, here we go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been a rough fucking time, man, honestly, but, you know, trying to pull through. Yeah, same here. Um, we, we dodged a few bullets with uh, family obligations, Christmas stuff going on, everyone trying to act like everything's okay, and then, like, getting some COVID outbreaks a couple of days after the fact. I know you had it, right, November around Thanksgiving? Yeah, I had it around Thanksgiving, like, a little bit before Thanksgiving, so I was able to see my family at least, you know, which is yeah, good. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, tons of people around me just got whatever this new variant is, and um, you know, but no, no one real. Everyone seems to be having a pretty good uh, recovery from that, so it's not too bad, I guess. You know. Yeah, I had a, one one close friend who was fully vaccinated, had a booster as well, and uh, got kind of wrecked for a couple of days by Omicron. He had a hundred and four degree fever, just. Oh, wow. a, a flu-like funk but he came out of it and you know he's he he wonders if he wasn't vaccinated how much worse it could have been so he can only speculate but we dodged a few bullets but i have a six-year-old in school and every day we're getting alerts that they've they've he's got a classmate down or substitute teachers are coming in and staff is dropping like flies and i just feel like it's any day now you know so yeah just ready to just give myself over <laughs> to this contagion and get it over with <laughs> yeah actually uh it's funny just a few days ago i got uh contact tracing got in touch with me um and they were like i was exposed at some point over a certain range of dates and um so i just went to get tested and you know i'm negative but the doctor at the you know it was one of those urgent care places and the doctor was saying that you know just you know for your own information we don't recommend you even getting tested unless you have like symptoms, which I found to be interesting because, um, 
I don't know, like for all the entire, pretty much the entire pandemic, I was getting tested every two weeks and, um, you know, been negative the whole time. And then after I get vaccinated, I actually, that's when I got COVID. <laughs> so go, go figure. My, my son's pediatrician said the same thing. We gamed out. I asked him a hypothetical. He comes home with it. We're all maybe having mild symptoms. Is, is it even worth bothering? jamming y'all up running around trying to find a test he said no treat it like a crud a cold a flu carry on ride it out and just you know move on with your lives so that's kind of the point we're at he said it's like trying to stop the wind at this point so yeah i think i think that's kind of like how we're going to proceed past this thing eventually you know i mean if you know i'm, I'm no epidemiologist but uh you know from what i read prior to this pandemic you know, if if you ever read, you know, Jones, uh, Guns, Germs and Steel, they talk about yeah. pandemics like in South America and, you know, North America and everything. And, and you know, back in the 1800s, it seems like you read all these like Westerns and people are dying of like consumption or whatever, you know, yeah. and these fucking weird diseases. And it's like disease is not something is something that we've overcome as a, as a species. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm not like getting on some anti-vax like tirade, but but, you know, it's the natural order of things, man. And like, you know, it happens every hundred years and you just got to ride it out. You know? Yeah. At this point, I feel a lot more with therapeutics, vaccines, there's ways to protect yourself, milder variants, assuming. I don't know that the dark throne vaccine doesn't emerge and kill us all. The next <laughs> yeah. or something. Um, but it was it's 2020 was just like the diciest year. And with a young son at home, older parents, I got it. My dad's in his mid eighties. My mom's in her seventies. So it was a lot of stress worrying about that. But I feel like we've turned a corner round in the corner. Finally, <laughs> finally round in the corner. Yeah. Right on, man. So, yeah, I'm going to do an intro um, off, you know, after this, and we'll just kind of get started now, I guess. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. Pete, I just wanted to get it straight. Like, I, I don't know if we actually met back then, but I remember playing with your old band, The Farewell Order. And I yeah. think that was the first, like, first exposure to you was back then when um, it was someplace in Connecticut, and it was us being anodyne. Harkonnen and you guys and it was like I think during the day or something like that is that your recollection as well exactly it's funny I just told my wife this story yeah the feral order Harkonnen Anodyne maybe one or two other bands is in Hamden Connecticut at um a venue that I don't think is there anymore it's not the space which is a newer kind of happening club I think but uh Harkonnen didn't have their drummer because I think he broke an arm so they had a, a snare drum and an inflatable doll and a drum machine playing with them and uh yeah that was one of our earliest shows you know we weren't a band together very long but yeah great memory man I remember that show well actually that what I believe it wasn't even a drum machine I think it was the isolated drum tracks on a cd yeah. Yeah, yeah that's just right. played it through like a walk with <laughs> disc man or something like that into the PA. Hey man, they were they were making the best of it, you know. They were in a jam and they played anyway. So hats off. Yeah. Now that was cool. I, I I was really stoked to, um to see those guys play and and, and I, I the reason why I remember like my my awareness of you because I thought the Farewell Order was an awesome band too. Actually, thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah. And if I'm remembering the timeline correctly, that's when you were going to Yale, right? Yeah, yeah. I graduated in 2001 and moved back up to Connecticut to sort of make a go of it. 
um, in the farewell order and um, lived up there in an apartment with our bass player and, you know, just played, recorded for about two years and it, it just kind of timed out and, you know, it was time to move on. Then I'd met the guys in Cable and started playing with them too. That evolved into me moving back to Georgia and like remotely, you know, as you saw in the studio, just yeah. joining them whenever possible. But Farewell Order was kind of a short little two-year run and we gave it our best shot, but man, you know how hard it is. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, I love, I love that like that, that era of, I feel like a lot of people go through that point, point in their lives where they're playing in, you know, kind of hardcore-esque, hardcore adjacent bands or whatever in that scene yeah. where you do a band for a couple of years and it's like really intense for like a really short period of time and release like a seven inch or a demo and then it's done and then you move on to some other thing, you know, and I, that's always like a very interesting point in someone's life, I think, but I'm trying to make some context here. So you yeah. are originally from Georgia, right? I am. Yeah. I was raised in a suburb, Cobb County in Marietta, Georgia. So I think um, I've been to Marietta I, actually. I, yeah, I, I, I played a show in Marietta. Yeah. And you guys have, have played Atlanta in the past with, with Tombs and Anodyne. I know, I think going back, if I remember correctly, but uh, yeah, I was raised in the South, but prior to that, I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and uh, you know, I spent my whole life down here. So cool. Were you, when you were joint, when you were in Cable, because then a few years later, you showed up as the vocalist of Cable for a while. Mm -hmm. And that's when I think we actually met. Yeah. Like, in, it, like for real, like legitimately, like shook hands and met as, as, as two men in our adult yeah. lives. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> and you were, at that time, you were still, you were traveling between the two places or were you living in Connecticut? Yeah, I've, I kind of was doing some stuff with Cable around 2003 and made a decision it was time to move home. But, of uh, you know, getting to know those guys, they became good friends. They wanted me involved in the band. And so I pretty much remotely, you know, continu continued, you know, they, they were always very hot and cold, of course. They, they'd be active and then they'd kind of go on hiatus for a while. But whenever they sort of cranked up, you know, the, the engine and got going again, I was always asked to be involved. So I'd make every effort to go up there and take band photos, play shows, get in the studio. Um, usually rehearsal time practice was, I, I was doing everything on my own. So they wouldn't know what I was going to do sometimes until I showed up in the studio. To oh, wow. But it was a weird, weird way to do it. But, you know, we, we made it work for a little while. So. But it was cool to definitely like on the last cable record, the last, you know, release that came out a couple of years ago. It was really cool to have us, you know, all of us, you know, guys that were in and around the band on the same record, you know, because I, I got to put some vocals down. You sang on it, you know, Christian sang on it. Yeah. We had all these different, you know, people contributing to the record. And I thought that was a real, I thought that record was great, by the way. I thought it was really cool. I just, I just re-listened to it and it's held up great. And considering, I think that was done kind of, uh, late 2019, November 2019, it was sort of, you know, just a few months later, everything went sideways for everybody with a pandemic kicked into high gear just after the new year. So, um, yeah, I look back on that record and recording it with uh, just fond memories. And they, Cable always had a weird thing going on vocally. They'd have Bernie and Randy. Later on, I was introduced into the mix. And then on the, starting with the failed convict where Christian did some vocals and we had other guest vocals, it just turned into this like crazy 
sort of the variety was always like all over the place vocally on, on those albums going forward. So, um, yeah, it was cool to be in the mix all the time on that stuff. Yeah. I had you on the show. Welcome back to the show. Cause I had you on like, I don't know, like 10 years ago, I think we had, you were a guest on this podcast <laughs> and, uh, and that was, um, around the release of, uh, last call for the living back in, in 2012 or, or maybe you were on maybe prior to the release of that book. I'm not sure exactly. But, yeah, uh, but yeah, that was the last time we spoke about writing and publishing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. A lot of interesting stuff has happened. Um, plenty of despair and frustration and disappointment, <laughs> too. But, but um, yeah, I think the paperback had come out, I'm going to say like 2013-ish. And I was kind of in, in um, the wilderness at that point with the second novel, my follow-up, which is now coming out in May, and other stuff, I never stopped writing, but um, a French publisher got hip to my work and um, published Last Call for the Living and then bought the rights to the subsequent books, and then things kind of took off for me over there, so I was like frozen in ice in the United States, just, just sort of banned to obscurity, and then in France, I was suddenly, things were really taken off for me, so... You know, man, I was just, you know, thinking about um, how hard it is, you know, to be to be a, in a band and trying to find a label to release your records and, you know, to make a record or to write, even write material sometimes. And yeah. I can't even imagine what it's like being an author in this day and age, especially and trying to find a publisher. Because It seems like less and less people are reading. It's awful. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's tough, man. It's a buyer's market. You feel like it's a dying medium and less and less people are reading. And um, so it's it's hard because, you know, you need to find a literary agent. And again, as a buyer's market, there are a million writers behind you. Everyone's competing for this very small sort of market space. And uh, it's it's it can be very um, uh, despairing to, to, to go through that. And, and to draw parallel, because you've been over there, you know, um, a lot of times in underground music, going back to the late 90s, early 2000s, hardcore, just extreme metal, punk, every genre, you know, you'd struggle in the United States. You would be eating vegan potluck every night and sleeping on floors and or in a U-Haul at a truck stop playing for no money. Then you'd get an opportunity to go to Europe and you'd get treated um, remarkably well by and large, I know there's exceptions, you'd get paid a decent fee, you'd get, uh, there'd be hospitality, you could go to Europe and like, and it's no wonder every band from sick of it all to like, you know, crazy noise core bands love going over to Europe, you know, pre-pandemic anyway. Publishing overseas in Europe is a lot different and in France, it's it's like night and day compared to the United States. So I got really lucky, but um, man, I was just, I was privileged to just be able to go over there several times my my books found an audience and uh yeah i don't know but i'm 10 years between books in america so imagine going through the work of writing a record and you know you need a label to put it out right you could put it out yourself but you don't want to settle for that so imagine waiting 10 years with this record on the hard drive ready to go but nobody cares that's kind of kind of what i was the position i was in so yeah that's that sounds like really really difficult to get through you know and you know, it's it's inter it's interesting you mentioned that about a label because like you know these days it, there's this very uh, populist kind of um, movement going on with music where people do things on their own which is great you know I think that's awesome but you if you're doing it alone with no support it's so hard to distinguish yourself from 
the rest of the everyone else out there who's you know making buying their own pro tool setups and you know drum machines or whatever recording records in the practice space I, I do think you need a label to help promote and get the word out with people so that obviously is the same case with a publisher too because i mean you know there's tons of people out there with their blogs and like self-publishing and all this other stuff which is awesome because I, I actually read a bunch of stuff that people um maybe it's not self-published but very very micro um yeah, small, you know, publishers yeah. yeah very small press stuff that's that's a lot of what i read these days but what i think has has uh operating within like a genre has that helped you you know bring some uh some readers to your work at all because like Clearly, you're in like the crime, you know, gothic, you know, crime kind of vibe. Is that is that a, a pro or a con? Like being a, being a genre writer as opposed to someone out there who's just like not writing within any specific genre. Yeah, um, certainly. If you're maybe an avant-garde literary novelist, it's uh, those are very small circles. I can't really speak to that world at all, but certainly in the United States, genre fiction is still popular, fantasy, science fiction, crime, mystery, and thrillers, about just a big umbrella genre is certainly, um, you know, I don't know how how those how books sell compared to 10 or 15 years ago. It seems like every 10 years, things just seem to be getting worse and worse. In France, crime noir, crime fiction is huge, hugely popular. So there's... Um, opportunity there for a writer if you want to be a genre writer and I I think it's it's great I kind of look at crime fiction like like you know I don't know Gigi Allen would look at punk punk rock or you know you'd look at hardcore metal like it can be whatever you want it to be like I just want it to be kind of dangerous so I look at I want crime fiction to be dangerous I don't want to play by any rules but there's an you know the caveat is to publish right now in this day and age you do have to uh, perhaps bend and I, I don't know you, you you have to deal with whatever's trending in the marketplace whatever the new rules are and they seem to change all the time and on top of that you know publishing isn't a meritocracy so you need a lot of luck too you know just yeah. like the music world there's a lot of great bands who work their ass off they just can't catch a break the feral order not to say we are a great band but it seemed like we were operating Remember late 90s, early 2000s in New England, things were starting to get kind of good for he heavy music, venues opening, lots of possibilities, more musicians around. But right when we broke up, it seemed like a year later, Headbangers Ball is on the air, metal has this big renaissance, and even like yeah. extreme metal, Millinger Escape Plan, Meshuggah, stuff that was like out there at the time, it suddenly got you're reaching a wider audience. So timing is a huge factor too. But just to the original point, yeah, writing a genre fiction, crime fiction, I think it's, um, I, I think it's the way to go if you want to publish at a high level because it's really hard if you want to be out there, you know, um, and and find an audience for your work. You know what I mean? Well, well I like to start with um, with the first your first book, Last Call for the Living, and um, you know, I came out about just about ten years ago, and uh, you know that's definitely in that noir, hard boiled, but dark. You know what I mean? Like there's very unsavory characters in that, um, you know, for anyone out there who's not familiar with, with Peter's work, it's definitely if you're a fan of like, you know, maybe S. S. Craig Zoller or like uh, George Pelicanos or something like that. It's like this gritty, dark crime with desperate characters and, you know, anti-heroes and like all this, this stuff. So 
you know, that, that whole, there's like a broad genre of stuff when you talk about crime thrillers and mysteries and stuff like that. But this is definitely on the grittier side of the spectrum. It's not like, um, you know, it, it's, it's dark, you know, which is why I like it too, you know. And um, there's, there's another thing that I saw, which I haven't read, The Clay Eaters. Now, how does that fit into your, your, your catalog? Clay Eaters. Yeah, Clay Eaters was my third novel, and that was published in France um, just a few years ago. I went over okay. there to do a, a book tour to support it and attended some liter uh, book festivals, too. And um, yeah, it did well. It hit a bestseller list over there and by and large received, you know, near unanimous, you know, positive review. It was great. It was well received. And uh, it fits in nicely with uh, The Devil Himself. I look at Last Call for the Living, The Devil Himself, which is out in May here, and Clay Eaters. Um, as sort of a trilogy uh, regard, uh, with respect to like rural noir, all of them are set in rural areas in, in Georgia. Um, the, the devil himself and clay eaters in middle and south Georgia. And uh, uh, the clay eaters is very much kind of an homage to Night of the Hunter, one of my favorite films and books too. An old, old classic black and white film starring uh, um, Robert uh, Mitchum. Robert Mitchum, yeah. Sorry, yep. I started to blank there on that. And um, so, yeah, it's very much in that vein. Each book, uh, the hinge or pivot point in the book regard uh, or uh, focuses on just two disparate people meeting. Um, it's, it's just a common tool in writing fiction and, you know, two people from different worlds sort of colliding together and all of a sudden, you know, based on that, that meeting and relationship, uh, you know, things are never the same for them after that. So that's sort of the device I'm working with in each in those three books. And that's why they, I feel like they're kind of a coherent trilogy if you were to read them, you know, from uh, uh, starting with Last Call of the Creators. Now that's only available in Europe. That's not, it's not available in the States, like an English version of it. Yeah, not, in, it's not available in English yet, only in France. Um, and uh, we'll see if a lot of things, speaking of luck, depend on the devil himself and what opportunities, you know, present themselves. There's been some film interest in the devil himself. Um, if the book, you know, hopefully performs well, just as far as sales is concerned, you know, there's a very good chance I'll be able to publish Clay Eaters. But, uh, you know, this stuff's out of my control. It's hard. I had to learn to accept, you know, if you put a lot of work into a piece of art, a film, an album, uh, a book in my case, and you want the best for it. You're ambitious. You know, you want to succeed. Um, you want it to sell well. You want it to become a TV series on Netflix. You know, I'm just being honest. Yes. And when, when you just kind of don't hit those marks or you, what you, you might just consider failure, it's tough to want to keep going. And that's what I've, that 10 year stretch was, you know, dealing with mentally but thankfully in france that book found an audience and i have hope the clay eaters will be coming out next in the united states um and how i don't know i want to i want to publish at a high level with a reputable publisher but so the book is widely distributed i don't want to settle for self-publishing I, I feel it's a fire hose of content and you might be a one in a million of record or book or what what have you that finds a way but by and large, you're just going to disappear off the face of the earth if you go that route, in my humble opinion, anyway. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, that you, you probably these days shelf space, you know, just getting even, you know, going to like a Barnes and Noble. I mean, I can't find any books that I want to read actually at Barnes and Noble anymore. It's like I went in there and they have absolutely no books besides like the classics, which I've already read, you know what I mean? 
Like if I go in there and, and look for, um, you know, like a, like an Adam Neville book or something like that as a horror writer that I really like, I'll never, yeah. I won't find a single piece of work by him, even though he had one of the two of his films, two of his books made into films that are on Netflix and still can't mm-hmm. find anything. So if you're marginalizing yourself further by like you know, self-publishing, there's a way you're, you're just going to be, you have to look for those, those releases. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's hard to, to get the word out on man. It's hard to just will or manufacture buzz too, for your book. And certainly when you publish with a reputable publisher, that's distributed. Well, the devil himself is being distributed by Simon and Schuster. So it's, it'll be out wherever books are sold. You'll, you'll be able to get it. Um, and it gives this sort of this imprimatur of like respectability and validity to the work, which, you know, it's like putting out a record on, on a well-known label, you know, yes. whether in the, in the metal world, whether it's season of the mist or relapse or what have you, people see that and go, Oh, there's sort of a gatekeeper, you know, at work here that, that people respond to, and they're probably more willing to check it out. But, you know, a friend, a writer friend of mine remarked that like, you know, it's especially in the events over the past couple of years, it's like, it's no wonder there's more dollar stores in America than bookstores. <laughs> and when you, when you go over to France and like, there's a bookstore in every little town and village and, and it's in Paris, there's something like, I, I, I might be mistaken, but I think at least 200 bookstores scattered throughout the city. People go to graduate school to learn how to be a bookseller how to work in publishing on the production side. It's a, it's a, it's a noble profession over there to be a bookseller and, you know, bookstores here, there's some great independent bookstores out, out there in America that are wonderful, but by and large, their numbers are shrinking and they're fighting, you know, tooth and nail every year to just stay afloat. And you walk into a lot of these stores and it's no wonder it's mostly like, you know, games and stationary and, you know, yeah. the book inventory is a lot lower or on a, for the bigger retailers, you know, it's, it's a retail job or if you're, in, you find yourself in France, you meet a bookseller, it's like a noble trade, you know, and uh, that's really inspiring when you're over there. I feel like, I feel like it's how things used to be in the United States and they're not anymore. And it's, it's kind of tragic for someone who loves books like I do. So, yeah. I, I agree with that because I do. It's funny, just in general. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've been like touring this country and Europe since like the mid '90s, and uh, in the United States, even just the the overall landscape of our culture has. I'm going to say I'm going to be bold, and I'll say has somewhat degraded and become very homogenous in a lot of ways. Where sure. you would stop off at a, you drive across the country and you would get off the exit and it would be a different, different color, depend a different flavor, depending mm-hmm. on what part of the country you're in. You go West, it's different. You go, now it's like you get off at the exit and it's like the same stores are there. You got a Starbucks, you got a Walmart, you know, you got like a Chick-fil-A or whatever. It's all the same homogenous sort of thing. And I remember back in the old days, finding like little bookstores like that. And some, the thing I miss the most are these like specialty places that you can go in there and they'll have like, you know, the, like a deep catalog of material. Yeah, Cause I'm really into like horror and, you know, like weird fiction and stuff like that. So sure, yeah. finding all those authors on the shelf in a bookstore is so unusual these days, but back 10 or 15 years ago, you'd be able to find like an Arthur Mackin 
you know, collection or something like that on a bookshelf somewhere in a, in a specialty shop, you know, but these days it's just, you got to mail order everything. And that's a real yes. drag. And, uh, and on uh, to that point too, you know, you might be able to ask the bookseller who's that's their shop and they're carrying titles that, you know, they obviously they, they want to carry inventory that's going to sell, but they're carrying stuff that they're really probably obsessed with and sure. adore. So you could ask them about a particular writer and just like having a cool record store that you can always go to. And maybe you get to know some of the people who work there and they're always like, hey, if you like this and all of a sudden you've got six new writers, six new bands to check out. And for people like us who I know are obsessive collectors and always digging for art, you know, uh, that's part of the fun. And I miss that book. I miss the bookstore culture, which when I was young was around, it doesn't, I don't feel it anymore in the United States. And in France, it's very much like that. Um, everywhere, you know, there's, um, bookstores that are very specialized and you go in there and, you know, if you're into new age stuff and self-help books, you can find a bookstore that tailors just to those interests and needs. And the one thing, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into a debate about uh, socialism or something but you know france has laws on the books that limit the amount of discounting a giant retailer like amazon can do i think it's five percent or something the details are online but you can read about what the government's done there to help keep a, a walmart or amazon type behemoth from under you know underselling and running french booksellers out of business because it's such an important part of their culture so people are just would just as likely just, I'll just order it from my neighborhood bookshop from, you know, so-and-so who I've known for five years or whatever. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, as opposed to here where it's like, I can get that for $15 cheaper on Amazon and get it tomorrow. Why wouldn't I order it from there? You know, and an independent bookstore, they can't compete with that. They have to charge, you know, a higher price or list price. And it's tragic, you know, it's just, it's sort of the downs of sort of this ugly side of capitalism, unfortunately, as it pertains to the arts. You know, um, so I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile it. I just have to make do with what's in front of me as a writer and just, you know, hope hope that my book finds a way in America. Because, yeah, know, I think you, it'd be cool if there was like some I mean, the arts and capitalism like are almost mutually exclusive in some way. Yeah, they're not very compatible. Are yeah, they? they're not compatible. <laughs> it's like, I kind of feel like like capitalism should work for like like sewage pumps or something you know what i mean like you, you should be able to go out and get like a really good price on like an ejector pump or something you know what i mean and then yeah precisely. anything that's like arts related should have like a, a bottom line that you can't all right this this is the minimum that you could accept money for you know it's just so because it's such a hard thing to be creative and actually exist you know and, and can and not even make a living but to continue with what you're doing at a subsistence level you know what i mean I mean, yeah, know. even as a vocation, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's it can it can be absolutely demoralizing. And during this stretch, um, France really buoyed my spirits when I was just um, really, really, you know, uh, down and depressed over it all because I put in a lot of work into these orphan novels sitting on my my hard drive and. I'm not going to get into the reasons, you know, that you, you have to play this game. You have to have representation, shop your work around. And uh, there's so much luck involved, too. Um, you got to have talent. you got to work hard. But there's a lot of stuff out of your control that is really, again, it's not really a meritocracy. You have to, you're, you're sort of playing the lottery 
when it comes to writing, you know, you want to write publishable fiction. So, and that's why so many writers are clamoring to do TV and film because that's where all the money is and your hope and everyone is praying that, you know, the TV and film industry notices your work and options it or develops it because that's how people are consuming storytelling now. It's, I, 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 I hate to sound so cynical, but the quality of fiction, I feel like every 10 years is starting to just like slowly devolve. And then the people who have the attention spans to sit and read a novel length, you know, book manuscript is that number is shrinking and shrinking. People would rather consume quick videos on YouTube or stream stuff at their, you know, at their, uh, whenever they feel like it. And um, it's disheartening, you know, it really is. And I don't know if it's influencing how writers write, that they're trying to write stuff that is more applicable to film and television, and they're not writing fiction anymore, you know. Um, maybe. Uh, uh, I, it just makes me depressed thinking about it. So yeah, well, I mean... I, uh, you know, I like watching shows just as much as anyone does, but sure, same here, same. the value, you know, and even like audiobooks, for example, or it's way, it's not the same as reading, you know what yeah. I mean? And, and I went on this big tirade in a past episode when, um, cause I, we launched a, um, like a mini series within the podcast about, you know, that's dedicated to weird fiction and that's going to be on our, our, it's, those episodes are on the Patreon, um, stream because that, that's not everybody's cup of tea yeah but quarterly we're going i'm going to be um donating to uh various literacy uh charities out there because cool i want this big tirade about just the ability to read and how much secondary benefit your your intellect gains by like looking at a page there's these symbols and your brain conjures those symbols into an image in your brain. And that losing that ability, I think, is like would be a huge, huge loss for the future of our culture, really. You know what I mean? To, to somehow yeah. just watch a video. OK, I, I understand this. I don't think that's really going to cut it. Yeah, I don't know what what the human race is going to look like long after we're gone. If the, you know, the the ability and interest in reading text on a page and using your brain to, you know, whether it's just you're consuming a story or you're reading about, I don't know how to how to plant a crop on your farm or something like it's uh, it's scary to me. It's the stuff of sort of dystopian science fiction. But uh, I grew up reading. I grew up around books. My father was a writer and I, um, I don't get me wrong, adore film and, and television. I don't keep up as much as uh, other folks do, my wife included. Um, but when I do have free time, I just turn to a book. And also in this social age we live in too, where attention spans are just seem drastically shorter. I've even had to retrain myself where you just feel like you're always reaching for your phone every 10 yes. seconds. Um, it's, it's terrifying and I catch myself doing it. This is years now of me like trying to temper this sort of new part of my brain, you know, that wants to just hold the supercomputer in my hand and constantly check it for stuff where it's like, uh, put it on sleep, do not disturb, put it in another room and then sit and read without interruption, even if it's 30 minutes, you know? And I found, I found that there was a time where it was very hard for me to read I used to be able to sit and read for five hours in a row without, you know, without thinking twice about it. I remember reading Stephen King's The Stand when I was 12 and I consumed it, I think, in like three days under under like the cover in my bedroom in a flashlight. That sort of cliched kid reading a horror yeah. novel in the bedroom. And uh, now I feel like 
having a kid and family get older, life gets complicated. But I almost had to retrain myself to read with purpose, without interruption, without distraction, without my brain kind of checking out on me and wondering like, hey, I wonder if I got a like on Twitter or some nonsense, you know? That, it's scary. It's weird, you know, but it's just, that's the reality we, we're in right now. Have you read um, Marcus Aurelius's uh, meditations that, um, you know, the yeah. Roman Empire Emperor Marcus Aurelius? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it in a while, but I know what you're talking about. One of the, one of the key things which I've been trying to apply to my life is uh, that those moments of just not taking any influence from your environment, you know what I mean? Mm. At the end of the day where you turn off, you know, obviously Marcus Aurelius didn't have Netflix or anything like that. So it was probably <laughs> easier for him. One can to, only imagine. <laughs> yeah, to go out and like stare, you know, be in the environment and you know, the beautiful Roman landscape and take that in without influence, you know, without having, uh, you know, his phone ringing or anything like that. But I've been really in the last like, because I, I, I had like a very uh, several month period of distraction and like, you know, depression and all this other stuff happening around me. And it was very pulling me out of myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So in the last like month or so, I've been really trying to pay attention to that. Those like sort of tenets that he had about how to, you know, a good way to go about your life. And I've been trying to like have like, like a 50, even if it's 15 minutes at the end of the day where there's like no phone, no computer, no screens, no shows, no music, just time inward, you know? Mm-hmm. And I find that it's allowed me to concentrate more by, by doing that. Even for 15 minutes a day, I can focus on things a little bit better and I get a better night's sleep and all this other stuff. So I don't know. It's just, there's a lot to these things, I believe. No, no, there's a, a, a lot to what you're saying. And I don't know if culture wide in the United States, even around the world, there's kind of maybe some pushback on the, the pressure and changing landscape and you know, turmoil that that's kind of seems to me connected to this new social age we live in where it's either, you know, people either turning to the outdoors, whether it's first generation hunters and or, you know, organic farmers or hunters or, you know, people getting into hiking, camping, fishing, um, or, you know, meditation, just finding time every day to, like you said, almost put yourself in a sensory deprivation tank and look inward, try and calm your thoughts. There's yeah. a lot to that. I know transcendental meditation is really popular being a big David Lynch fan. I spend a, a, more time in the woods than I probably should. Certainly in the fall during deer season, you know, I'm always out hunting and there's something, a lot of people might not get it, but there's something to sitting 25 feet up a, a white oak in the, in the middle of the woods, you know, a mile or hundreds of yards from my truck and being immersed in nature without, I'm not looking at my phone and it's off. And I tell you, there's something that whether I, I get an harvest an animal or not, just that 10 hours or 12 hours or a weekend, if I'm like camping out or staying at the uh, hunting cabin, for example, recharges me in ways that um, I almost can't describe. And it's what you're saying on a micro level, just finding 15 minutes a day where once a week I get out to the woods and I go spend a day tromping around chasing white-tailed deer. And it does wonders for my mental health. And I've in 2020, especially, we were all 
dealing with the stress of that year. Like, I don't know what I would have done without like the ability to get outdoors and, you know, whether it's hike and hunt. So people are trying to are reacting and pushing back, I think to it, but overall, I don't know. I don't know what, what's going to happen. It's going to look like idiocracy. (laughs) I was thinking about that. I started thinking about that back even in 2016 when Trump took office, I was thinking about, or immediately thought about that idiocracy movie, you know? Yeah, it was satire and reality just blur blur together, <laughs> and you can't tell the distinguish between an onion article and like a headline from a major news source. You know, we've crossed a Rubicon, Rubicon, and I don't know if there's any going back. Things still feel surreal every day. There's something sort of new and nonsensical and absurd to sort of try and you know process. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, thing just nothing feels the same after certainly 2016 and certainly after 2020 i haven't recalibrated myself to whatever all right so with the devil himself that's available that's out in in france and that's going to be released in the next couple of months here in the states and and you you kind of went into why all that happened and you know what the background of that is um I, i read half the book last night and um i found it to be like very compelling. Now, this is actually out of the three books that we discussed, like Last Call for the Living, The Clay Years, and Devil Himself. That's your second out of the three, right? That you completed. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm just, you know, I I wasn't aware that Clay Years even existed until I, you know, did some research. Yeah, things now, haven't gone conventionally for me. A lot of authors who maybe follow a conventional publishing path will put their book out in the states and then simultaneously, you know literary agency that represents them if there's interest will sell uh, rights overseas you know france is a big market certainly germany the uk etc and then that book whatever book we're talking about will then come out maybe a year later over there and then by then you're on book two in the united states and book three so it's staggered and you're they're always a little bit behind but in my case and I'm not alone, actually. My pu- French publisher who specializes in American authors has a few writers who are in my position where their publishing record in the States has been spotty or they've had a lot of difficulties um, or just haven't had any luck. And, you know, but they're doing thriving over there. So it's not unheard of. But yeah, it's a little wonky, man. That's it's hard to describe to people. I can't tell you for 10 years how many times every week almost I get an email or someone asking, hey, where can I get these books in English or when are they coming out? And you know, at some point, I don't know, in the music world, there's no parallel. You can be like, yeah, this new Tunes record is only available in Portuguese right now. You know, <laughs> I actually sing it in Portuguese. <laughs> yeah. You got Max Cavalera on there doing yeah, he's doing vocals on the record. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but the devil himself, uh, I finished the first draft of that book sometime in late, uh, 2012. I have the file on my computer, shelved it for a little bit. And then I sent it to my then editor at the publisher who released last call for the living. It got no response. And so the book has always been intact basically since then. Um, I've continued to work on it. It was prepped it for publication in France and it did it's aged well and I've continued to refine it um but yeah it's just been I've just had it this sort of baby and I just haven't been able to get it out into the world till now so it's a huge relief it's just like uh you know I'm relieved I'm, I'm really excited um and I've accepted that this is all I can do it's going out into the world and whatever happens will happen but it's all out of my control at this point you know how people respond to it 
I just want to touch on your, your writing style a little bit. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, let's, for lack of a better term, I would describe it as somewhat, um, you know, laconic with like these kind of um, short sentences uh, similar to like maybe John Fonte and like Ernest Hemingway, where it's like this kind of very uh, rapid fire in some ways, and also um, sort of less descriptive in a way that it uses adjectives. You know what I mean? So it is like a, an accounting of a situation. You know, when I read it, it's like this kind of accounting of what the situation is. And that's how the story kind of progresses. And I'm just interested how that, how you developed that writing style, like what like might have influenced that, or was that something that you intentionally moved towards or, you know, just basically how you came about that writing style? Yeah, it came, it came naturally to me. You know, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat and there's a lot of ways to write fiction. You know, you can read um, old horror novels from the from the 80s and they've got a lot of purple prose and, you know, there's just lots of detail. High fantasy is certainly these gigantic yeah. books. And I'm a fan of the genre, um, but there's just a lot of ways to approach fiction writing. And for me, it felt natural intuitively as I was learning in my sort of apprenticeship period and reading regional writers I love a lot of southern writers um, who by the way John Fonte, Charles Bukowski, um, uh, Raymond Carver you know these every these writers were all playing stylistically I think in the same sandbox and some of these writers would be like Larry Brown, Ron Rash, certainly Flannery O'Connor um, who could write elegantly as well but um, for me, the, the big tactic is this sort of classic, uh, you know, uh, writing method of show versus tell, you know, it's like writing a screenplay. Um, I like clean, precise sentences. Um, every now and then maybe get a little showy and write an elegant or lyrical line, but I prefer to just describe what's going on, define your characters through their dialogue and their actions, and pack as much subtext into you know, your prose as possible um, and into the dialogue as possible. I love trying to do that. Just get away with as much as possible with as little as possible on the page. So it gives, there's depth there for the reader to explore um, as opposed to just explaining everything, you know, whether it, it's simple, you know, your character's mad. Do you say they're mad or do you have them pick up an ashtray and throw it through the drywall? You know, what's more effective? And I think for the reader, it's, it's the latter, have them throw a damn ashtray through the drywall. So that's an example of like kind of what I'm trying to do. Simple, precise, clean sentences and language. So. Yeah. The narrative moves along like, like very, at a really good pace. I think, like I was saying, I read like half the novel last night and, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I probably would have finished it had I didn't have to go to band practice, but, um, but yeah, I'm probably going to knock the rest of it out after this afternoon. Well, I was only going to give you one excuse for not reading a full-length novel in a night. Band practice is the one excuse. So you're you're okay, Mike. You're you get a pardon there. It's all that meditation, man. You know, it allows yeah. me to focus more. You know, so uh, so yeah, you know, I can I can I, I I'm good for 300 pages a night. That's you know? impressive, man. Yeah, but you know that type of writing, it's like James Elroy too, with his sort of uh, um, they call it a telegraphic style, very short sentences sometimes just subject noun um that uh you can really breeze through stuff like that whereas other types of writers even writers i adore but their styles are much different and they can be really um they can really demand your attention you know 
Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, that just comes naturally to me. I'm not trying to force the issue there. It's just, this is how I've learned to write and I'm comfortable with. And I feel like um, when writers try and not be themselves as far as how they execute a story, um, it shows, you know, it shows every time. Now, I'm always interested in that because, um, you know, I, I attempt to write as well. And, uh, you know, I, it's just stylistically, it's, I'm always interested to see where people are coming from with that. And it's funny you mentioned Elroy because when I read a James Elroy novel, I like break out in a sweat. I think it's like you read his, 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 his prose. It's like, it's like smoking crack or something like that. You're like your heart's beating fast or sweating and you know, it's crazy, you know? Yeah. I read his last novel. I read it um, last year sometime Perfidia. Stormfront? Is that what it's or, uh, the, the next to last novel. I haven't read Stormfront yet. Uh, Perfidia though, the precursor to that. And it was, um, it was a wild, crazy work of genius, but absolutely exhausting. You know, yes. after a while, his, um, the story itself, his and his his style was. I felt like I was just getting hit repeatedly in the face with a hammer. You know, just these like sharp, sharp, angular sentences that just never stop, and it just goes and goes and goes. It was relentless. So, um, yeah, I, I appreciate that type of writing and dabble in it. Um, but uh, I've tried to find my sweet spot, and every writer has to search for that. You know, as far as how they how they do their thing. Earlier on, when we started talking, I wanted to uh, establish like some kind of context about like, you know, where, you know, your, your background was and you, know, you lived in Georgia, you live in Georgia and you're native to that, you know, because your, your, your material all is very regional oriented. Now, are any of these places actual places or are they like a, uh, you know, like some of these towns, like aggregates of other places that you've been to or people that you know and that sort of environment that you're working is? is it yes no i've i've uh in the devil himself for example when you get to the end of the book you'll see right past the uh, right before the acknowledgments I, I was compelled to put in an author's note where i do let the reader know that the setting trickham county is fictional I've, I've i've completely made it up um but it is um nestled in a very particular part of the state which is kind of southwest georgia where i spent a lot of time and, uh, and, and middle Georgia as well. So it draws on real landscape features. Um, I am talking freely about the city of Atlanta too, but I'm taking tons of liberties and that's just basically at this point, creative license, you know, the, I, I have my own embellishments in there and that's for the reader either to accept or reject, but I have more fun inventing my own sort of geography and drawing on real life stuff, uh, draw, drawing from real influences. You know, the book opens with our, our young character, our young girl, Maya, is running from some bad guys. They want to kill her. And she's and she eventually runs through an area that I hunt pretty often. It's actually one of my most productive deer hunting spots. I've killed hogs there, too. But I'm basically describing a place that I have spent hundreds of hours, you know. And so I'm drawing on stuff like that as far as uh, the natural world in the book, for sure. But I, I mix and match stuff, you know, I'll make up the name of a town and put it right next to a, a real place in Georgia. And uh, I think it's my freedom to do that. I don't, and, you know, as long as I'm honest and persuasive with how I execute that, I don't think the reader is ever going to, um, you know, suddenly get jarred out of it. You know, maybe a Georgia reader will pick up on these things and go, that place isn't real, but that's fine. You know, that's, that's fiction. You know, 
I enjoy that. Like I like when, when there's license taken with, you know, it doesn't have to be so literal all the time with locations and, you know, settings, things like that. Yeah. You can get kind of tied down to that and beholden to real places if you're not careful. And, um, but some writers love doing that. There's a writer uh, who I share a French publisher with William Boyle, who writes about Brooklyn, where he's from. And he just described Brooklyn with so much sort of, um, love and fondness and uh accuracy so and i'm pretty sure he's very he's very um accurate regarding you know um of everything from street names to neighborhoods so he's he's he takes that that route whereas in my case i'm sort of inventing my own town in my own county um i might be wrong there bill might get upset and want to correct me but um that's an example where the writers can do it to fantastically well you know write about their home and do it you know real streets everything is accurate that bank is there that drugstore is there that is where city hall is and you go there and you're like wow they nailed it this is exactly like it is in the book i think that's cool too you know there's like i said a lot of ways to skin a cat as far as setting in a novel well one of the things that um comes to mind about that aspect of writing is um you know I recently spent some time around my hometown and met up with someone that I knew when I was in high school. And even though we lived in the same town, grew up in the same town, our perspective on that place are two completely different things. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't remember any it being anything like this other person's recollections are. So <laughs> I like to approach when I read something that is like it taking place in a, in a known location. I'm like, oh yeah, this is that that trip of like, yeah, this is how I, I saw this place through my eyes and maybe someone else sees it differently, you know? And I, I always really trip out on that stuff. Like when I'm reading about an actual place, you know, and I was thinking about that a lot over the holidays really, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Of, you know, sort of the tried and true of um, advice for fiction writers is write what you know. And it makes a lot of sense. For me, I, I like to extend that. The great Montana writer once told me when we were in France on a book tour event together, you know, that the goal is to write as honestly and persuasively as possible. Now, you might be making up uh, the seven kingdoms or something, you know, or might, might be writing high fantasy. And so these rules have to be interpreted differently if you're doing genre fiction. But I, by and large, I feel like it's a great axiom to, to follow and just always keep in the back of your head, whether it's you're writing about your hometown or you're making up a town, but it's very similar to the one you grew up in, or I'm making up, I'm, I'm making up a landscape feature or some deep backwoods in Georgia and it's fiction on the page, but I'm thinking of some woods I've actually run around in. So you know, that's, uh, that's like the North Star, the guiding light, you know, not only to write what you know, but try and just be honest and persuasive with, with what you're doing. Because I think if you fail there, the writer's going to know it. And that's, that carries over to everything, your characters, dialogue, you know, if you want to write a female character as a male, or if you're going to write a, about a parent or a person of color or anything, like you've got to make sure that you're being honest and, or else you can, you know, you'll, you'll be called out for it. You know, you can be criticized for it and it weakens the story, you know, weakens the writing itself. So um, yeah, it's hard. It's tricky, but it just takes time and a lot of failure. (laughs) And eventually you figure it out. Now, now, for example, uh, the devil himself, um, the characters in that, um, in that book, they're very like, there's a lot of um, depth 
to those particular characters, you know, Maya, Leonard, uh, you know, Lucio. Um, and there's like, a, so, so what comes first within your process? The character ideas or the narrative? You know what I mean? Like while, while you're pondering these creative ideas, do the characters spring out first or those the story that the characters are, that are there are involved with, does that come first? Yeah, uh, no, it's a great question because I, every writer's different. You ask 10 fiction writers, they'll give you 10 different answers. A lot of them have uh, a plot in mind and they might also want to plot out the novel really, really meticulously, but they have a plot in mind. A, uh, you know, there's a bag of money discovered in a ceiling by a, by a contractor. And then from there, they plot out some really cat and mouse type of, you know, story, for example. Uh, everyone's different. I'm a real visual writer and I usually have images in my head and the devil himself started with, um, was inspired by someone in my wife's family of, or stories of people in my wife's family and in-laws about a, uh, a local man from decades ago who sort of trolling people before trolling was a thing. He had a reputation as being kind of like a little baddie kind of, uh, you know, he was a bootlegger for a little while and he, uh, uh, for a week or so rode around town with this mannequin in the front seat of his car and he did it as a lark you know like I said he was sort of trolling you know but imagine in the 1970s in a south Georgia town this was like kind of people were like that dude's crazy you know it really got uh got a uh, riled people up and I loved I had this image of this of an old man I had this image when I heard about that years ago of an old man uh, in a car with a mannequin and the mannequin is wearing a dress and has makeup on and a wig like she's really done up and he's actually going somewhere with the mannequin and he wants to like they're going to the movies for example and from there I just started asking all these practical questions what's the story here you know does he live with the mannequin does he talk to it how long has this this arrangement been going on what's the backstory there and from there the novel just kind of starts to like I said, you're peeling back layers of an onion trying to get to this core truth. And I don't plot at all. I don't outline at all. Excuse me. I better plot or else my book would <laughs> I don't outline at all. So everything is by the seat of my pants. And it's a lot of a lot of false starts and groping around in the dark. But, you know, you, you eventually find your way. Every book, though, it starts with, a, with an image like that. Claytors is the same way. It's this guy falling from a tree stand and dying, which is very and I hunt from tree stands, so I'm climbing up trees 20 to 30 feet routinely to hunt from up in the air with a bow or rifle. And, you know, it's if you don't take safety precautions every year, some, you know, there are tragedies. Hunters fall and break their neck, break their back or die. So I had this image of this hunter falling in slow motion in the woods. And that the only sound for a moment being him hitting, uh, hitting the floor, hitting the, the duff. And that's clay eaters. That's how it got started in my head. So both books, it's... Uh, Yes, just an image, like like a film in my mind, and I need to figure out what's going on. Actually, the, the outline bit was uh, one of the questions I had. So I guess you don't work with outlines. That's, you just no. Kind of, yeah. I mean, if you were to look at my notes for the devil himself, I'll keep legal pads. And, um, you know, I, I prepped the book for publication in France. It went through an editing and refining process and then copy editing and, and final pass and editing for the United States, I work with an amazing editor named Lily Golden, and she um, uh, really helped with 
I, I kind of compared the editing process and copy editing and final pass. I look at it almost like the mixing and mastering stage from the music world. This is where you're dialing knobs up and down and getting the levels just right. You might catch inconsistencies and stuff, but um, the, the book really benefited from that. But no, there was never for the devil himself a very meticulous outline. Some writers will have storyboards and big lengthy, you know, uh, every every step is sort of planned out and I don't have that at all if you were to look at my notebooks for devil himself you'd think I was probably like a institutionalized in a psychiatric hospital I mean there's there's notes and margins that don't make sense but to me stuff written in shorthand uh, just you go down rabbit holes of research and then it's all about picking the right details that serve your story so no it's very kind of haphazard and kind of crazy um, how I go about writing these things um, you know, it's just just the way that works for me. I'm like I'm like Michael Gear from the Swans, I think, only without the band to yell at. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love Swans, but I'm like, I feel like there's a lot of chaos in how he creates Swans records, and I feel like there's a lot of chaos, at least internally, as far as how I try and make these novels up. So. Did you see that documentary that came out a while ago? That, uh, oh yeah, just, I, yeah. I, I loved it. I've been, I, you know, I've got a Swans tattoo, and I've got. Uh, I've been I've been a Swans fan since the late 90s when I got hip to 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 all of the stuff to, to what he was doing just after they broke up and then he started um, and launched Angels of Light and Young God really got cranked up and I, I turned to him constantly I have weird sources of inspiration you know I have writers I adore I have Mount Rushmore writers um, I read a lot of nonfiction. I, lot, I read a ton of outdoor writing but I, I draw you know inspiration from music especially too in ways that just don't make sense you might not see it on the page but you know yeah like a swans record or something or a, you know a, a lightning hopkins album or something i i'll i draw more inspiration from that for writing than i would like an actual writer you know another writer now do you work with the same editor on each one of your um your, you know the, the three novels that you have like um you know to trim it down from a manuscript into the published final version of the of the work of the work yeah, in my kind of dilapidated publishing career, I've had a different editor so far for the two books that have, that are coming out or out in the United States. I worked with an editor at last uh, with Last Call for the Living um, of a man na of named Bob Gleason, who actually edited my father at that publisher for many many years, a couple decades actually. Um, then for Devil Himself, I worked with an editor at Arcade Publishing, and she was you know absolutely brilliant wonderful to work with really helped elevate the book and then in france i've worked with the same editor oliver gallmeister for last call for the living book one the devil himself book number two and the clay eaters and then eventually soon uh, my fourth novel will be coming out in france so i've worked with him on each book but that's a different process in france compared to the united states you know um different markets different audiences the book is going to translation so there's different concerns and points of emphasis uh, for an English reader compared to a French reader. So there's differences there. A lot of writers, though, have been with the same editor for years, you know, and they have great working relationships. But uh, yeah, I haven't had that yet. I, I'd like that, but, you know, it hasn't worked out that way. How, how hard is it on the ego to go through the editorial process? Like, I've often wondered that, you know, I mean, like, like, you know, to have someone give you notes on your, on this thing that you put so much time and effort in and spend all this time with, and is part of like, kind of like 
you really, you know, mm-hmm. like to have like, you know, like, and this is projection, like my own ideas, like, you know, this stack of paper with red lines through it and notes and all this other stuff. Like how, do, how is that, how does that, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you work through something like that? Yeah. You know, I feel like if you're, you're working with a reputable publisher and a, and a good editor, you have to sort of not to quote a cliched sort of athlete expression, but you have to trust the process. And if you trust your editor, you know, that they they want what's best for the novel. So everything from maybe, uh, you know, just a simple line edit, suggesting the use of a different word um, or, you know, catching a typo or an inconsistency or something to j- big picture, um, see the forest from the trees story elements. Um, I feel like I love the editing process. You know, Devil himself went through dozens of drafts. You know, I lost count. You just continue to refine it. You know, it's like making a record, man. You could probably sit there and mix it within an inch of its life and never let it go. There comes a point where you've got to cut the cord and just send it off into the world. But um, I welcome it. Maybe if you're, I am a sensitive guy and, and very delicate. <laughs> but, Dude, I um, hear you, man. I'm, yeah, but I you know, uh, I have to, you have to submit if you trust your editor that they want what's best for the novel. And I enjoy that part. Some writers might be very sensitive to criticism. And if it's delivered certainly harshly, it can hurt your ego. It can definitely, you know, you can take, you can internalize it. But I, I, the heavy lifting is the hardest part of writing a novel for me. That first draft, the first, if you finish the manuscript, you have this big, ugly mess on your hands. That's the hard part. And I try and get through that as quick as possible. And then when you get in there and start fine tuning it is for me, the really enjoyable part and to get perspective from, from other readers, from an editor is invaluable because you don't have it. You have no perspective at all. It's like the same equivalent. If you're a film editor and you're in post-production and you're trying to edit your film and you've got some other people there, you got other eyes on the material. You're in the, you're in the studio with Eric Rutan or something, and you've got his input and you've got, uh, Maybe he's got an, an engineer or assistant and you can say like, what do you think of that? And then all of a sudden you've got three or four opinions on a mix. You've got three or four opinions on a guitar solo. And this it's, and you, if you're there and you trust those people, it's invaluable, you know? So oh, yeah, I love for sure. I, I love it. I welcome it. And the devil himself is a better book, I think, for just trusting, for trusting that process, trusting my editor and, and just going with it. Actually, it's funny. The last couple of years of, tombs our, our songwriting process is becoming more like that in some ways like mm-hmm. I, mean, I could show you a screenshot of my my hard drive and there's like seven nine ten versions of songs and they're all like slightly different you know like i'm going into this a little bit more on, on um on the podcast like some of the patreon episodes about writing the records mm-hmm. you know writing music or whatever and um it's like this in a very uh, obsessive process with the editing of songs these days where it's like, here's my first pass at the thing. And then revision number 10 is like maybe the one that we end up recording. And even yeah. at that point, it changes still, you know? So, and I kind of like that too, because I think back when, you know, when I first started writing music, it was like, no, this is the song. It has to be this way because this is, and then you, record it and you listen back and it's like well maybe we played part b like too many times or something like that and yeah it's a it's a balancing act i think you know to draw a parallel to writing you could have maybe a hardcore pulp writer you know maybe they're 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 writing in different genres but they're the type of old school writer 
where back in the day, like go back to the 1950s or 60s where writers could make a living, like just banging out like pulp novels, you know, dime store pulps. My father did it, you know, and then yeah. at one point he, he told me my dad was writing under the pseudonym um, Steve Burkeen that he was banging out these these like old like pulp crime novels. He's like, I, at one point I was making more money than my father, who was an engineer um, of writing pulp novels you know and so yeah you can you can bang something out in in three weeks and just send it out the door without a second glance you could write records that way too but the older I get too and as I've gone through this apprenticeship period trying to learn the craft of, of writing fiction where I prefer um you can disappear into a black hole of this but editing getting into the granular detail of scenes what your word choice injecting subtext into scenes you know just just by like having a character do something an action or a line of dialogue and just injecting tons of subtext into those moments you can get really cerebral with it and the balance is and i like that though you work slower but the finished product i think is much much better and the parallels in the music world you know you could sit there you might have a bridge and you want to have some weird noise stuff going on and you can mull over what instruments and how you mix it and how many how many track how much how many tracks you're going to just stack on top of each other and how crazy you're going to get with it and that's just one little moment and one little song and in fiction writing it's the same one little section where your character saying something of of the utmost importance and how do they deliver that line and what words do you use and have you used these words before and are you repeating yourself and it goes on and on and on so you have to learn as an artist where do i draw the line where when is this right and do i let it go or do i just sit here working on this book for 10 years and it never you know gets done so <laughs> one of those too definitely. sure for sure yeah one of the things um i was curious about was um you know, crime fiction is, uh, you know, it, it's in some ways in, t in the eyes of what today's people might see things might be a little problematic in the mm -hmm. use of, um, you know, women get roughed up and, you know, there's like stereotypes and all this other stuff. Has that ever entered into the editorial process? <laughs> with oh, boy. You opened up a can of worms, man. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just curious about that just because like, you know, I, I can imagine these, I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, obviously I like to let creative people do what they want, you know, but I imagine these days, like people always want to dip their finger in somehow. You know? uh, man, a lot has changed, you know, in a lot of the arts in general, but yeah. just to speaking to writing fiction, like crime fiction. Yeah. You're seeing big, um, big sea changes as far as maybe what's acceptable or um writers you feel like you have to be careful about how you write characters you know um for fear of being accused of in my you know i would say perhaps something you're not but i don't know if their readers are more sensitive to this but uh yeah there's you know you have to kind of play by new rules maybe um you have to be respectful certainly of certain sensitivities but there comes a point where it just gets absurd and i come from the attitude when it comes to art i'm i want i want crime fiction to be dangerous and i don't want anyone telling me what i can and cannot write about you know because we're on a slippery slope to censorship there at that point but it all goes back to me um to what the fantastic montana writer pete from told me once in france is 
You're honest and persuasive with the writing. None of this matters. The reader is not thinking about you. The writer, the writer is invisible at this point. Your, care, your characters are these living, breathing things. Um, so yeah, but yeah, whether it's how women are treated in your book, um, you know, or uh, different of different people from different racial backgrounds, or you know, uh, different whatever whatever you have sexual persuasions, you know, all of these things. Now you have to balance in how you're portraying these people on on the page. Um, and, but on top of that, though, can you know, I am I am Puerto Rican. My mother's from Puerto Rico. On my on my mother's side, they were all born from Puerto Rican. But I just I don't identify as anything. I'll you know I'm just a dude, and I like books, and I like metal, and I like hunting, you know. And I'm like I'm a simple man, dude. I'm kind of ignorant in that respect. But it's like, am I only allowed to write about like? middle-aged dudes who like craft beer and black metal and guns <laughs> like, because that's a boring book you know I want to be able to write about whoever I want to write about and explore people from different backgrounds from urban environments from rural environments different age classes I want I don't want any obstacles in my way as far as what I write about but the challenge my challenge as a writer is do it honestly do it persuasively and be a compelling storyteller, then these things do not matter at all because the reader's not going to worry about, you know, what my background is. I will be invisible and that's the end game. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I feel like the, the consumer of the art, like the, the person who reads or listens or appreciates the, the, the work is not concerned with those things. It's these weird tiny masters of today that are like really concerned about it, like critics and yeah. You know, people who are like trying to gatekeep this kind of, uh, you know, ideology, you know, and I don't think that the consumer out there really cares. You know? Yeah, I, I'd like to think not. Um, certainly there are really popular crime fiction writers who, um, you know, I don't know if it's because they sell a lot of books, but they, you know, are, are able to write what they want. And these things, they, they, these criticisms aren't levied at them or maybe other writers. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's very, it's a very lightning rod of an issue for sure. And um, I don't know, I've had to, I've had to kind of, I've had to deal with a little, little bit with devil himself, as far as just sanding down a few things to um, at the suggestion of, of my editor. And I was fine with it. You know, they, they were, it was all fair game for me, but um Ultimately, I did have a line in the sand and I wasn't going to cross it to, for the fear of neutering my book. And we never got there. And it's cool. You know, I don't know what pe how people will react to the novel and the story. If they're going to see things that are there that I never intended or their own personal prejudices and biases are going to come into play and they're going to, you know, their things are going to bother them that really shouldn't. I, the, my problem, Mike, is that, A, nothing offends me absolutely nothing offends me at all. I don't care what it is, but I do have a strong moral compass. I know right from wrong and I don't have any critical sense at all. I just like stuff or I don't. Things are cool, good. Things are not cool. I don't care for it. And I just kind of like, I just operate on that level. So I'm, it's tough for me to deal with all this stuff because again, like if I, if some, some people get outraged by something, I don't get outraged by anything, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm when the same it comes when it comes to the arts, I'm just like, you know, I'm not into it. And I just like move on, carry on and just keep seeking out art that I dig, you know, without, you know, trying to make some writer or musician or filmmakers life miserable or going online and, 
and you know joining a mob or something i just ignore it you know let the market deal with like some with bad art you know <laughs> and and carry on it so i don't know i'm the last person to even comment on it because I'm, I'm one of those weirdos who just doesn't get worked up over this stuff so yeah i'm i'm, I'm you and i are on the same page with that for sure so where um if you want can you share some details about uh you know where people can check to see when the pre-order for your book is available like what what are the channels you know for all that sort of stuff yeah man um the the devil himself is out may 3rd it's available for pre-order now anywhere books are sold um from books a million and barnes and noble to amazon to your local independent bookstore they can they can go right into their computer and pre-order it through their distributors um you can order signed copies as well. Uh, if you go to peterferris.com, there's a link up at the top says uh, sign copies from Foxtail. That's my local bookstore here. I'm going to be doing a signing at in May. Um, and the product page at Simon & Schuster has links to every retailer on planet Earth. So the book will be out worldwide with the exception of France too. So it's coming out in the United Kingdom, Australia, uh, in English, uh, uh, Canada. So it'll be it'll be available worldwide in English uh, in May. Yeah, so I'm pretty excited. Uh, but PeterFerris.com will get you anywhere. So or just or that, just googling the, googling the devil himself, and you'll get a hit for me. So, so that's the landing page, PeterFerris.com. And um, yeah. are, are there any social links that you want to share for people to follow you? Yeah, I'm on. I've uh, been on Instagram for a while, uh, and I kind of hang out there more than I care to admit. And I sort of rejoined the fray at Twitter and Facebook and I'm sort of, I'm there and sharing stuff that's mostly book related, but uh, it's like the wild west. And I'm, again, I, I, I yearn for the days when writers were invisible, you know, in the background. And, uh, but I, I'm on all social media platforms. So you can look me up, PJ Ferris, author PJ Ferris over at Twitter, author Peter Ferris on Facebook. And then I'm just Peter underscore Ferris on Instagram. So you can find me just by with a search. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I, I follow you on, on Instagram. I stay away from Twitter. Twitter is like, I have a Twitter account, but it's like auto posted. I don't ever read anything else on Twitter, man. That's uh yeah, I'm being very like cautious. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm curious about crystal meth and I'm just trying to like only, <laughs> only dabble in it because that, that's, it's, I was, uh, yeah, it's just, it's like the wild west for me, but it's very active writing community on there. A lot of very supportive yeah. writers, especially in the crime mystery world. And, you know, it's, it's cool, but I'm, um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to go slow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, thanks for joining us. And um, yeah, I'm excited, man. I'm going to, I'm going to head out and probably, I'm going to pre-order that book and uh, you know, looking forward to it because I want to get a hard copy as well. You know? Yeah. Uh, I should add hardcover is what it will be available as a hardcover and ebook wherever books are sold. And yeah, if you go to my website, Foxtail Bookshop in Woodstock, Georgia, we'll have signed copies in May. So the book will drop and anything you order from them will they'll hold until I sign it and then they'll ship it out. So you know, it actually might might help people with um with you know keeping the publishing industry alive somewhat is I guess the ebooks, you know, and Kindle and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, I just recently um started using Kindle like on my iPad in the last just literally in the last two months because um it started where I came across something called Dark, which is a like a weird fiction publication, and it was like one dollar a month. And it's a mag, you know, it's basically a magazine, you know, mm -hmm. literature. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, Kindle, oh yeah, I have this app. 
So I started reading the magazine every month on Kindle. And then from there, I started actually trying out other authors that were, that I read it, that were in that magazine that had stuff on Kindle. So it wasn't like um, an investment so much into putting something on my shelf by something I, I might try it out and not really enjoy it. Be like, oh, well, I have this book now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I, a Kindle, Kindle is a, a really good way, I think, to, to sample other authors writing that you're not familiar with because it's, uh, you know, they're a little bit cheaper than buying a hard, a hard copy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Certainly like the devil himself, the ebook options are uh, reduced cost. So um, it's a, that's a great way, you know, especially if you're running out of space or, you know, maybe you live in an apartment, um, you know, books can stack up. I've got that oh, problem. Yeah. If I were to turn my computer around, you'd see it firsthand. So like, I'm, uh, uh, I, I have no problem with how anybody consumes my work. I don't care where they buy it to, to each his own. I certainly would support, you know, uh, uh, buying a book through an independent bookstore, if you have one in your neighborhood or one locally that you hit up from time to time, help the, help help those independent bookstore owners out. But it's, it's not my place to say, you know, and I'm just grateful if anyone, you know, would want to buy the book at all and share a kind word for it online. You know, that goes a long way for writers too. After you buy the book, if you like it, leave a review on Amazon, leave a review on Goodreads, tell a friend, take a picture of it and post it on Instagram. This book knocked me out. Man, that helps writers so much because you can, it's so hard if you don't have a lot of publicity, you're not anointed by your publisher and they sort of get you out there and get you all these opportunities, you know, to promote your work, to manufacture buzz, to get word of mouth going. It's so hard. Yeah. And I'm relying on the book being good and people just recommending it to each other. You know, I'm proud of it, but I, it's really hard for me to do it on my own. So that goes a long way. If you buy books, you know, take that extra step online and, you know, share it. Uh, in some manner on, on social media. Well, thanks a lot, Pete. I appreciate that. And um, so, yeah, have, enjoy the rest of your day, man. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks for having me on, cool. Mike. Take care. Dude, um, that was awesome. And I uh, appreciate your, your time. Mm-hmm. And um, hold on a second, I the window here. If, uh, if you have an idea for a... Um, like an outro track, you know, some sort of, you know, whatever, a song. You know, if you have it as an MP3 or something like that, you know, send it for like a preferred like outro, you know. Yeah. Do you have yeah. uh, copyright concerns when it comes to stuff, or do you just no? No, because I usually have like some other audio over over it, you know. Like, yeah. Have you, uh, if unless you've used it recently, what about Black Medicine from Take the Stairs to Hell with all of us on it? <laughs> I mean, that, that's, all right, great. Yeah, that sounds that's awesome. I'll do that. Okay, yeah, man, use that. Use that one. <laughs> okay, no, that's perfect. That's that's you know that's probably a, that's a great a great recommendation to do that. Yeah, totally, man. Cool, cool, awesome. Well, thanks for your time, Pete. Yeah, man. Listen, if you want to have me on when the book drops in May, this is a real pleasure, man. I'm happy to come on anytime you want to, you want to talk. So I was thinking to do that, you know, because that way it'll it'll get in front of people and they'll, you know, it's it's a it's a current sort of thing. So maybe after the book is out, we'll we'll talk again. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a few podcasts around the release. I've been invited to and in, uh, some bookstore events, and uh, uh, I'd be happy just to go and maybe to more detail on the story and stuff and the you know yeah. research for the book. I could definitely talk, fill up an hour talking about that sort of thing too, you know. So yeah, absolutely, man. Just let me know. Right on. Yeah, it didn't really make that much sense to dig too deeply into it now because the book's no, not available in this country yet. 
All right, no, no, it's perfect. All right, have a good day. All right, cool, Mike. Take care. Later. Sure. Bye.